Hi, and thank you so much for joining me today on The Gospel Lens. The scripture calls us to be sojourners and exiles, and to view this world in the current age as a place where believers don't fully belong. However, we face a wide variety of experiences and circumstances on our path. So we hope this can be an encouragement, an edification, or challenge as we try to take a microscope to events, experiences, and situations in our lives and ask the question, how does my identity in Christ and the gospel determine my perspective and response to life and events on my exile path? So today, we're going to start a multi-part discussion, uh, talking through a few different passages. And our purpose in this is to see, so when we talk about looking at the world or looking at different situations through the gospel lens, or seeing what the gospel has to say about a current situation, what does that really mean? So what does the scripture say, or how do specific passages in scripture drive us to look at the world in the context of the gospel? And how do we take those passages and use them to interpret our situations? How do we take those passages and use them to, to look at the world through the lenses of the gospel? Now, the first place we're going to start is going to be in a passage that you probably don't think of when we talk about the gospel. See, the book of Ecclesiastes has traditionally been, at least for me, a book that is a mix of really interesting and also really confusing. I think a lot of the interaction with it that I heard through my life was mainly in passing or references to very specific sections, cherry pick of different verses or pieces from the book that seemed to fit a specific context or a specific discussion. Whether that's someone saying, well, you know, to everything there's a season, right? Yeah, I'm never sure when I hear that whether they're quoting Ecclesiastes or the bird song. Uh, or a preacher ending his sermon to a younger audience by quoting from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You know, and he might include some vague reference to the point of the book, but it's more as a means of giving weight to his call to action than actually discussing the book. However, recently I've had reason and time to look at the book a little more in depth than I've done previously. And while even after a closer look, it's still a really difficult and complicated book. This is not an easy part of scripture. Not that any of scripture is necessarily easy, but I think this one has much to say when it comes to pointing us to the gospel. You see, Ecclesiastes can often seem very dark, very defeatist, even fatalistic at times. This is in contrast to the somewhat black and white view seen in Proverbs. So in Proverbs, we see in many places the world as it should be. So good generally wins, evil is punished. If you consider verses like Proverbs 13, 21. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Now that sounds really nice, right? Disaster pursues those who don't do right. The ones who do right are rewarded with good. But then you look at the world and you think, yeah, but that's not really what I see. And so often that's not what happens around us. Or what about Proverbs 3 and verse 35, much earlier in the book? The wise will inherit honor but fools get disgrace. Again, that sounds really nice. That sounds like the way it should be. But so often we look around the world and you might think to yourself, yeah, but when I look at the world, it looks like the wise don't always inherit honor. And sometimes, depending on your opinion of certain people, you might think, well, fools are getting the honor. They're not getting disgrace. When you read a verse like this, you might find it to be a little bit dishonest. So in a perfect world, fools would get disgrace. But in the real world, it's a little more complicated than that. 
I realize this is an oversimplification of the passage, but often we can look at sections of Proverbs or the Psalms and think that maybe things are just a little bit more nuanced than what the author seems to present. Now, Ecclesiastes seems to echo a bit more with some of the Psalms, where we see complaints and confusion at the success of the wicked. But while it can get dark at times, the darkness of Ecclesiastes can serve to drive us to the light of the gospel, and it demands for believers that we look at a broken world and interpret all of it through Christ and his gospel. Now, my intention in the next few sessions is not to do a systematic study through the book or to try to exegete sections from it. Rather, by taking a look at specific themes from the book, particularly the early parts of the book, I want to show how we are pushed to look at the gospel for different situations in our lives. But first, why don't we talk a little bit of background on the book, starting with the part most people are somewhat familiar with, which is the author. Now, there's some discussion about whether the preacher, the person mentioned at the very beginning of the book, is also the author, but really that's beyond the scope of our discussion. So we're just going to focus on the identity of the preacher. The book starts the words of the preacher, or you could say leader of the assembly, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, traditionally, the preacher's been identified as Solomon. There's not really much reason to doubt that, especially since he fits the descriptions or Solomon fits the details that are given throughout the book. The book of Ecclesiastes is considered part of wisdom literature, but it's very different from other wisdom literature. Again, in some ways, as I mentioned before, a quick look at the book would lead us to think that it's contradictory to books like Proverbs. See, Proverbs tells us the value and importance of wisdom. It tells us about the benefits of walking along the wisdom path. It tells us the consequences of failing to walk in wisdom. And it follows a fairly standard Old Testament formula of promising blessing and good to those who follow wisdom and do good, along with promising punishment or suffering to those who forsake wisdom and follow their own path. But then along comes Ecclesiastes and reminds us that while all that sounds really nice, the world just doesn't always work that way. Ecclesiastes acts in some ways as the practical counterbalance to Proverbs. Yet while it can seem contradictory, Ecclesiastes actually plays a very important role in explaining and pointing out many of the evidences for the world as the rest of Scripture describes it. You see, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher is going to call out nearly every aspect of the human experience and the things we turn to for fulfillment, happiness, pleasure, and he calls them vanity. The word he uses for vanity, it's, it's probably one of the most recognized parts of the book of Ecclesiastes. The word hevel is difficult to translate because he means several different things by it. So the strict meaning is breath. And we often think of it as transient, something passing quickly or lacking substance when, when we think of the definition of the word vanity. And in some cases, that's what he means. In some cases, he means that it's meaningless. For example, in chapter 2, he'll say that pleasure, seeking pleasure, is vanity, meaning it fails to satisfy. Later in chapter 2, he'll refer to the fact that someone's labor or man can work just to have the fruits of his labor go to someone else. And he says that's vanity. In that passage, he means more that it's an absurdity. It's ridiculous that that's the way that it works. It shouldn't be that way. And that really is one of the main points to walk away from Ecclesiastes. Look at the world and think, this isn't how it should be. See, in Ecclesiastes, we have a man who examines life, guided by wisdom, 
he sets himself up almost like a scientist with the world as his laboratory. He says he has the means and the opportunity to test a wide variety of possible sources of meaning and happiness. And so he did. Not much is said about it, so we have to assume that he's fairly honest in his self-assessment that he kept his wisdom through all of it. But think of a few of the areas that he explored. So in chapter one, he describes the overall meaningless nature of the cycles of life in the world. People are born, they work, they die. They have nothing to show for their life. The earth keeps turning year in, year out. The sun continues his circuit. The wind continues its circuit. The streams keep trying unsuccessfully to fill the sea. A really key part of this whole section is that phrase, all things are full of weariness. These endless cycles get old, but they keep going. Nothing sees completion. It doesn't see fulfillment. The wind never gets to its destination to rest. The sun never finishes his journey and hangs it up. The streams keep flowing. Man's desire isn't sated, and we don't even have the excitement of new things to look forward to, just a repeat of the same old cycles again and again. This book is going to drive home over and over again the reminder that we are trapped in almost this prison of repetitive mortality. This isn't the only time he's going to talk about these cycles. They, they come up again, this idea of times and the, the, the idea that he'll repeat of things under the sun or in this current age. Now, when we read that, he's not here to give an easy answer or an explanation. In fact, the preacher doesn't want to provide the easy solution. If anything, he wants you to look at the world and agree with him. He goes to great lengths in this book to show that he's already tried to find the solution in the world and nothing worked. He covers a wide variety of possibilities that he tried, starting with pleasure and indulgence. Anything he wanted, he says, he went for it and he got it. He basically sets himself up as the ultimate person who has everything. He gets wealth. He tried alcohol. He tries laughter, architecture, art, more wealth, wives, being better than anyone that had preceded him. And when it was done, he still felt that emptiness, that vanity. You know, being the dad of four daughters, when I read this passage, I can't help but think of the Little Mermaid singing her song that she's the girl who has everything, but then pivoting by saying that she wants more. So maybe someone can do Solomon's version of that song. But after searching for meaning and pleasure and indulgence, Solomon says he searches for wisdom. Now, this is where we would expect this is Solomon, right? One of his descriptions that most people recognize is the wisest man that ever lived. So we would expect Solomon to say, finally, I searched wisdom and that's where I got it. Wisdom, of course. I, I've devoted an entire book to the praise of wisdom, meaning found. But that isn't what he says. Here, you can almost feel his disappointment and frustration. This is where we expected him to find the answer. The answer is in wisdom like that wise man building his house on the rock. But Solomon says, not only do I not find fulfillment and meaning here, but I started to question why I even bothered to be wise. He even says that he hated life. You can sense his feeling of being cheated. I've been wise, yet when I die, I'll be no different than the fool, the one who didn't choose wisdom. By the time he gets to exploring toil for fulfillment, he's left behind that pattern of describing what he tried and then how it failed. He jumps straight to the failure. I hated my toil. 
This is where the book really starts to get confusing. The same guy who has repeatedly affirmed the importance of wisdom and hard work in places like Proverbs, he'll even affirm both the importance of wisdom and the importance of work and toil in this book. But here he says that wisdom and toil are vanity, striving after the wind, and their inability to fulfill and satisfy made him hate life. There's much more that could be said about this book. To fully unpack it would be a lengthy series, but I wanted to focus in on the idea I mentioned earlier. Part of what Solomon is doing in Ecclesiastes, a big part, is to look at the world and come to the conclusion this isn't the way it should be. This is absurd. It's meaningless, no matter where you look. And we can be tempted to call Solomon a a nihilist or, or someone who comes to depressing conclusions and offers very little in the way of hope or alternatives in the book. And in some senses, we wouldn't be far wrong. However, Ecclesiastes offers much more than just a depressing look at the realities of life. It offers us a picture of the world as the rest of the Bible describes it. It offers a sharp contrast to the gospel. If you think about what Solomon says about work, it matches really well with what God told Adam his work would become. That as much as he would work, it would become difficult for him. It would no longer give him the fulfillment it once gave him. So in Ecclesiastes, you have one son of David telling us of his experience in the meaningless, absurd emptiness of life. But in this book, that can point us to the second son of David who brings hope that seems to be missing in Ecclesiastes. See, the author here is right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Nothing in the world is the way that it's supposed to be. But the author of Ecclesiastes also has a very high view of God's sovereignty. And so when he says this isn't the way it's supposed to be, he's also saying that in some sense, this is the way it's supposed to be. And what I mean by that is that the world is designed to work in this absurd way. Think of what Solomon says about work and not being fulfilled by it. We might say, well, Solomon, you just didn't try the right work. You could have found fulfillment if you really found the work you felt passionate about. But do Solomon's words, as I mentioned earlier, don't they remind us of God's words to Adam? That his work was now cursed? See, in the garden, God gave to Adam and Eve himself. And a world that was essentially God sharing his goodness with man. And yet, in the face of true fulfillment and happiness, Adam and Eve looked at that tree and thought, I can find fulfillment there. And because of that, the world is not the way that it should be. Work is corrupted. Pleasure and laughter are corrupted. Even the paths of wisdom and folly don't give us those clean roads and certain outcomes we wish that they did. Ecclesiastes acts as a call to anyone who is tempted to seek fulfillment, meaning, or happiness in sources to use his phrase, under the sun, or in this world, in this present age, those things don't go together. Those things, those sources under the sun can never provide what we go to them to provide. See, Solomon wants us to see what he sees, the broken nature of the world. There's a phrase that he'll use a couple times in different variations. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. That's what I mean when I say that Solomon is writing to say that nothing is the, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and that is how it is supposed to be. 
Because in spite of his statement that what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted, God would send his son to do exactly that, to make straight what was crooked, to make up what was lacking. See, this is where the book of Ecclesiastes drives us squarely to look at the gospel. As I mentioned, there, there, it would take much more time to completely unpack the book of Ecclesiastes, and there are many different lessons to be learned. One important lesson is that it reminds us that no matter what you look at in this world, it's not the way it's supposed to be, and it will not provide that fulfillment. In Romans 8, we're reminded that creation itself is looking forward to the completion of redemption. Why? Why are they waiting for freedom from futility or from corruption? Well, because currently things are not how they're supposed to be. The world is broken, and nothing short of the gospel can fix that. See, Ecclesiastes is going to hold the world up for us to take a hard look and we should be driven to turn and look at the gospel for the solution and for hope. The gospel demands that we look to Christ to make things right. Whereas Adam and Eve and mankind since has attempted to patch things up, to sort of put band-aids on the world with everything under the sun, and we only have failure, heartache, and emptiness to show for it, the gospel demands that we stop seeking band-aids Ecclesiastes demands that when we see a pandemic driving the world insane, we should think this isn't right. Something is wrong with the world because it's not right and it's not how it should be. It demands that every example of the brokenness of the world reminds us of the solution to brokenness that we find in God and in the gospel. Thinking of our world and our circumstances without that gospel lens drives us to focus on and grow more frustrated and despondent at the failures. Viewing the world and circumstances through the gospel, we can see how Ecclesiastes shows us the depravity of the world and the perversion of God's good creation and reminds us that the gospel offers healing, restoration, and fulfillment. So this is the first thing that we take from Ecclesiastes. But it's an extremely important truth to remember as we go forward. The world is broken. And the solution to the problems in the world, the solution to that brokenness, is not in the world. The problem might be a lack of happiness, fulfillment, meaning, justice. It could be a pandemic. It could be any number of things that the preacher mentions. But one thing they all have in common that you should keep in mind is the solution, the missing ingredient, is not found in the world under the sun. For the solution, we have to look outside that broken system. Before we, again, as I mentioned, this is going to be a multi-part series where we're going to look at a few different topics and passages to see where do they drive us. If, if we're supposed to look at the world as broken, if we're supposed to view the world as lacking something, and we're supposed to look outside that brokenness, that broken system for the solution. Where do they drive us to look? And I don't just mean the simple answer, well, they drive us to the gospel. But what does that really mean? But before we do that, I challenge you to consider Ecclesiastes. And one of the lessons we take from it, the world is deeply flawed and broken. And it doesn't function as it should. But that is how God has decided it will be right now. It shouldn't drive us to despondency or hopelessness, but rather it should drive us to the gospel and to look at the world through the gospel because looking at it any other way 
shows only a bleak picture. Now, next week, we'll carry this thought further. We'll talk about some specific implications of this idea and how it can apply to specific circumstances or particular areas of life during the current circumstances and afterwards. And also, we'll talk about the dangers of missing this truth. But focus in on the truth from Ecclesiastes that we can see about the gospel for this week. That the world is broken. That the gospel demands that we look to Christ as the solution for that vanity, that absurdity, that meaninglessness that we find in the world and its systems. That attempting to fix the problems of the world using things under the sun, using things within the broken system will only lead to heartache and emptiness. The gospel demands that we look outside of that, that we bring the solution to the world's problems from somewhere outside of the world itself. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you next week. This has been the first part in a series we'll be doing, studying different themes from the book of Ecclesiastes in conjunction with other passages from Scripture to see how the concepts in this book drive us to view our world through the lens of the gospel. I hope you'll join me again next time as we continue to look at Ecclesiastes to be reminded of who we are in Christ and who we are in the gospel.